Hello, podcast listeners. This is Rob Long, along with Peter Robinson, one of the co-founders of Ricochet. And the audio and demand show you're about to hear is brought to you by Ricochet. And if you've been listening, you've also been hearing me tell you about how great it is to be a member of the fastest growing, smartest, wittiest, most civil conversation on the web. But don't take my word for it. Here's a Ricochet member to say it better, as Ricochet members usually do. Hi, I'm Cy Glenn, and I'm here to tell you why you should join Ricochet. So it probably violates a whole host of marketing and sales wisdom. I could ask you to join for what Ricochet isn't. A conspiracy theory saturated, just pool of insults and hysterical arguments and bad language that would make a sailor brush. But really, you should join Ricochet for what it is. It's the same place. It illustrates how much diversity and wisdom there is amongst center-right and conservative contributors and members of the community just like you. It's fun. It's safe to try out an argument. It's a place for advice. You can hear really rich perspectives on all kinds of topics. And that's important. But even more than that, it's a place to find a community and even, just maybe, make a few new friends. It's a unique place, and you do yourself and all of us a favor when you join. Pretty soon, you'll find yourself saying, that's the best advice I ever got from a psychologist. So, from Cyclin, join Ricochet today. There's lots more to discover on the site, and there are three tiers of membership available, each with its own goodies, Coolidge, Thatcher, and, of course, the highest level, the Reagan. Find out more and join today at ricochet.com, and thank you for listening. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh-huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead, they're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk! Glop Culture is brought to you by Encounter Books. For 15% off any title, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET at checkout. This week's feature title is Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel by Joshua Moravchik. So, yes, here we are on another Glop Culture. I'm John Podhoritz. With me, as always, is Garth, uh, meaning Jonah Goldberg in Washington. Hi, Jonah. Or L.A. Party on, John. Party on, Jonah. Garth. (laughs) And there in the heights of uh, California's uh, airiest, lowest uh, area is, and I'm losing complete control of the English language, is Rob Long. Hi, Rob. Hey, John, that was a, a, a fantastically dated reference when you referred to Jonah as Garth. I just want to like make sure that we all mark the passage of time properly. Yeah. Okay. That movie is now 20 years old. I would like to point out – I did, however, and, and, and watch, uh, We should say yes. for any, any of our listeners, uh, we have t- listeners in the tens of thousands – um, maybe you know, in, in the high tens of thousands really. It's a yes. popular podcast who yes. happened to be under 40. Okay. The movie was Wayne's World. Okay, I've got a okay, I've got a more up to date reference. Okay. Really? really? Yeah. Okay. I think that we <laughs> okay. we we should all hang from the chandelier. 
You don't even know that reference, Rob, because you don't have a 10-year-old daughter. That is the song Chandelier by, yeah. I don't even know who it's by, but it's like uh, it's it. Sia. It's by Sia. And, I, and by Sia, I don't mean Sia. But, uh, all right, this is going nowhere. So maybe we should just get to the show because I've embarrassed myself enough. But being out of time, though, being a little, yes. a little step out of time or, or forgetting the it, – it does feel – maybe it's just that we're all getting older that it, things are collapsing and it does feel like, well, well, you know, Wayne's World. Come on, Wayne's World. And you look at some kid, if you know anybody in their 20s, and you look at them like, Wayne's World, come on. And they look at you like – I mean I, I have a friend who's in his 20s who once said to me um, – we're uh, uh, talking about something, and he went, hey, remember that movie, that movie where the two women drive off that cliff? Was that, <laughs> was that Laverne and Shirley? Oh, <laughs> I have a better one for you. I have a more generationally horrifying one for you. Okay. The other night I was, I, had, I was out to dinner uh, or had dinner, some people over at our house for dinner, uh, relatives who were in their early 30s. And I told a story about how in the mid-70s I was trapped in an elevator in an apartment building on the Upper East Side with Art Carney, which is true. I was, in fact, trapped in an elevator with Art Carney, something I think I talked about on a You know what, John? I like to think that he was trapped in an elevator with you. Uh, I think that's Yeah. Well, well, one of us was drunk and it wasn't me. (laughs) Okay. Um, Anyway, so as I mentioned this – I saw a complete and total blank expression. Art Carney was a name unknown to my interlocutors. And then when I said, well, you know, the Honeymooners, oh. there was another blank. And then I said, you know, he played Ed, he played Norton, Ed Norton. And my wife said, Ed Norton, you mean the actor Ed Norton? So, so my wife, who is, by the way, a comedy professional in television, I don't say this to embarrass her, I just mean... That yeah. she is somebody who had forgotten that his name was Ed Norton. Well, you know, the dog barks the caravan. Yeah. caravan You're trapped on. in the elevator with the guy from American History X. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He had a giant, he had Actually, a giant swastika on his on his on his bare chest. Just being just being trapped in an elevator with a brooding, pretentious method actor would be <laughs> worse than the guy from American X. This guy yes. American X would be sort of interesting. Might have some stories to tell. See, this, this, are- this, this whole conversation, though, makes me very happy because I didn't get John's 10-year-old daughter reference to whatever singer that me was. Me Meanwhile, my 11-year-old daughter has to do a biography project for school, and she fought tooth and nail to do it on Lucille Ball. Oh, great. And wow. she's obsessed with I Love Lucy. Good for her. And wow. and and she's obsessed. And I, I've explained to her, like, because she was really into iCarly, which she liked a lot and lot, likes, likes lots of those shows. And I pointed out to her a long time ago that all of these shows are basically derivative of I Love Lucy, The Honeymooners, and a couple of other shows. Because and she's obsessed with that, about getting to the, the, the first co- – the, the, the shows where these weren't cliches. Yeah, we're actually right. like original writing, and so like she loves "I Love Lucy," the chocolate scene. You know, she loves to spot TV shows that rip off "I Love Lucy" and other shows, and <laughs> it's, it's pretty That's cool. Great. It, that That's is, great. I mean, yeah. that was amazing about that show was that it, it was so uh, weirdly improvised and slammed together, and yet it has all those things that people steal from and remember, and that. The, there's now like a third generation of people who I mean I I mean I'm 49 I never saw I mean I saw it, I saw it only in reruns I experienced I Love Lucy only when it was already over 
And even people now, uh, they always say that uh, when they when you sweeten a laugh track on the on those sweetened laugh track shows, which of course I have never worked on. You've never worked <laughs> on such a show. I've actually never worked. I really have never worked on a show okay. like that. Um, you buy the laughs from some laugh guy somewhere, and they're all just recorded laughs from the I Love Lucy show, uh, which means that everybody laughing is dead. Uh, <laughs> but also every now and then you used to, be able to hear this in the in the eighties. There was one I Love Lucy episode where there, there was a goat. She she wrote a goat on the you know Lucy, don't you bring the goat to the club? And then she brings the goat to the club, and then you can hear some lady in the audience say, "Well, it's a live goat." And if you, you turn up the volume on one of those shows in the eighties, you can hear someone for no reason because they didn't they didn't wipe it off the track. It's a live goat, you know, <laughs> from Growing you know, Pains or you know, my brother. Speaking of, my, 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 my bro- just because I when next time I'm gonna have a laugh track story. My brother was obsessed with the laugh track of Taxi. Remember Taxi? Yeah. TV show? Which I thought was a great show. Um, again, there's again, one no, guy yeah. in, on the laugh track who makes this honking sound. That's Jim Brooks. Is that Jim Brooks? That's Jim Brooks. Going, ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, it's Jim Brooks. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. That's not, yeah, that's not. Is that like widely say, known? Well, why, yeah. The well, it's now it's known. known. Now it will be widely known. That's James, for the people who don't know this, James L. Brooks, the writer director, he was one of the creators of Taxi. And that's how he laughed. And uh, Fief Sutton, my friend Fief Sutton, who was my first boss, Cheers, and, and is a good friend of mine now, and I've done a bunch of projects with him. Uh, there are episodes of Cheers you can hear. When we, we, used to, you know, we used to stand on the floor, right? So our laughter would sometimes get into the show mic. And if you were watching, if you're doing a pickup, like a scene at the end of the night, or you had to do a little scene, or you, did, or you just wanted to take for the shot in the fourth take where the audience has seen it four times, the live audience seen it four times, they're not really going to laugh as hard, and your laugh is going to be louder. Fief Sutton's laugh was like, uh, <laughs> that's just his laugh, and you can hear it on the track, uh, especially for the, for, for the seasons that he was you know, executive producer. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> You know, ha, laugh track ha, on ha, speaking ha. of, and you, by the way, you can hear that ha ha ha, the Jim Brooks laugh. You can hear it on every Jim Brooks show, not just Taxi, but Mary Tyler Moore. You know, um, speaking of 80s shows, so my 10 year old daughter uh, is now a big fan of Full House, which is on oh, so is Nick, at, Nick at Night. So the other week or the other day, I'm reading a deadline, this, you know, Hollywood advanced news website, and there's a story that the Fox Network has picked up as a pilot. Um, with a pr- pretty serious commitment, a show starring John Stamos. Right. Produced by John Stamos. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, John Stamos? Like, they want to do a show with John Stamos? And the show is apparently a lightly fictionalized story about how he discovers that he is, in fact, a grandfather because some woman he yeah. slept with in the 80s not only had a baby that he didn't know about, but then that baby had a child herself that he didn't know about, and suddenly he's a grandfather. And apparently it's maybe true. I don't know. That that seemed to be the hint in the story. And so I was thinking, A, John Stamos? And I thought, well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, Shana, my daughter, maybe she would be excited to see a sitcom starring John Stamos. I, maybe this is the story. Like, Well, they're also doing now- a... It- yeah, buried in that story, John, they're doing a, a reboot of uh, Full House. It's coming back. 
I think coming back with the with the very same cast. They're they're redoing wow. it. What's what, okay? But it's going to so be on no, HBO and like really, really <laughs> yeah, it's doing really dark. Yes, yeah. they're <laughs> actually back from the, they're they're back from the dead. That's the difference. They're uh, they're not just back. But I, if I could just bring, if I could maybe make a small uh, cultural point, just to because we've been talking now for fifteen yes. minutes. Yes, you make about any other kind? television? Yeah. Uh, two things. One, weird. This weird retro stuff uh, is. Uh, well, two, I have three points. One, hey, ISIS. Uh, two, um, <laughs> that it does seem like we are in a retro phase where uh, uh, we are now talking once again about um, a terrorist war that our president was supposed to stop. Uh, and then the third thing I was going to say was it. It uh, all of those shows your kids are watching, right? They used to have those on broadcast television. It was called TGIF on on, on ABC. Mm-hmm. And it made a lot of money, and it was very, very popular. And then ABC decided, and a lot of other networks, all the big broadcast networks decided to take that off. Right? That we don't want to do that kind of programming because mm-hmm. too many people watch it, too many kids watch it, too many families watch it, and we don't know what we're going to sell to those families or those kids. And they're not cool enough for us, and we can't get the high CPMs for them, so we don't want that anymore. So they took that whole business and they kicked it away. And they said, instead, we're going to be in more cool things like uh, Parks and Recreation, which gets six viewers a week. <laughs> Whether it's a good show or a bad show, it's irrelevant. It gets six viewers a week. We're going to be more like HBO, which gets 10 viewers a week. And they, they, and, and they only did this because they, are, they prefer programming to the elites versus programming to the mass. So this mass medium – that we talked about. I Love Lucy, which has now delighted people for, what, 65 years. years. Not only old people, but young people and very young people who have zero cultural. I mean, my God, if you're 10 or 11 years old and you're looking at a big black telephone that Lucy has to use and she's smoking by the back window and there's a club, it's, it's like a movie from Venus. Like, how do you even relate to it? And yet it's still funny. And the idea that that can't be on broadcast television, an exact version of that with big sight gags and funny jokes and broad humor that everybody laughs at is the exact problem with uh, mass media and television now. And it's not Twitter and Facebook and cable and all that other stuff. It's that those guys got too cool for school. Okay, end rant. Yeah, and because they shut all that down, they, of course, opened a giant space on cable – for right. entire networks Disney. devoted that Disney and Nick and Nick right. Jr. And, and these networks mint money. They are more valuable. Well, they, they don't, are, yeah. They, 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 have, they have minted money. <laughs> Disney mints money. Yeah. Well, Nickelodeon did mint money until something can, happened. Where I, they themselves, they themselves went too old. That was the thing. Yeah. Can I? They am, had the, yeah. I know we have a list of topics, but can I introduce a topic into this just, just to, because of now course. I'm thinking about it? Did you anybody see the Apple keynote? Yes, I did. Okay. I did not. Did you notice? I mean, maybe it's just me. I'm just noticing it now, and everybody knew it before. There was something so insufferably upper middle class white twee about it. Every choice was up was so insufferable. Of course, it had to be you too, like this kind of um, officially approved progressive liberal uh, music that they put on your phone against your will. Yeah. And of course, before that, the guy had to introduce, well, I, hey, I was just listening to Coldplay. Of course, it had to be 
Coldplay. And when he looks on and shows you the watch and says, I want to find the – what are my walking directions to Whole Foods? Of course it had to be Whole Foods. It couldn't be Safeway. And I'm going to have lunch with a friend. And I know he likes sushi. Of course he likes sushi, right? It couldn't be we're going to go to Taco Bell. None, there are none of the choices – None right. of the brands, none of the life choices, life you know guideposts that most Americans live by. None of that. We had to add none yeah. of that. It was all Whole Foods and Coldplay and and sushi. It just made me for the first time just sick. And of course, I hated myself because I like Whole Foods and Coldplay and rant. Well, no, but I think that's exactly right, and that actually that actually says something interesting about the fact that Apple is now the world's most valuable. Company is that it has figured out that its market is this fame. All we hear in politics is, you know, white people are through. It's, this is now the age of the of you know minorities, and uh, all, white people are all angry, and they vote Republican, and they're terrible, and they're horrible, and they're the voice of the past, and they're Republican, and it's awful. And meanwhile, <laughs> Apple, all Apple is is a white person's product, right? It's it's cutesy little googas and this and that and the other thing and yeah and so who do they have do they have do they have Kanye West as their keynoter when they're releasing an album no they have U two which is a band of you know people fifty five years old. You know, who had their first yeah. hit in 1987. U2 was so, old when, when Wayne's World, your favorite movie, was on. That's right. So uh, this just strikes me yeah. as an interesting little bit of an example that on the one hand in politics we are told that, you know, white people are over. And on the other hand, American capitalism is now yeah. entirely dependent on white people's culture for their for what is cool, what is now, what is hip. Consider, for example – uh, the fact that the New York Times did its 97th article this weekend on Lena Dunham, the creator of Girls, a show I admire. She has a book coming out. In they've two done weeks. they've done one article for every viewer. That's right. So no one watches Girls, but it's you know it's a conversation starter, and she got five million dollars for her book, and her book is coming out, and it is as though, despite paying lip service to multiculturalism, despite the notion that everything is now multicultural and wonderful and post-racial and all of that, um, in the end, what is comfortable for the New York Times, what is comfortable for Apple, what's comfortable for this is white, you know, well, more upper, than that, that class, show, upper the, class, elite. Uh, yeah, every that single one of those actors is – that show is cast with the sons and daughters of the elite. You know, Brian right. Williams' daughter, David Mammoth's daughter. I mean they're all rich kids. Right. Yeah, hey, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that's an important distinction because when when John keeps talking about Apple being for white people, um, it's specific <laughs> white people, right? I mean, uh, you know, did that make they, you uncomfortable, Jonah, when he said that? Well, no, just you know, having spent the last couple of days fighting a particularly um, bloody restive uprising among my Twitter trolls, um, I'm you know, <laughs> and, and inspired by President Obama, who feels like he should be. Putting his, you know, putting his head in ISIS's position for their PR strategy. I like to think about what critics would say about some of these things. And anyway, my only point is, is that it's it's not white people qua white people. It's not. Let's put it this way: it's not Chick Fil A white people that right, Apple yeah. is reaching right, out right, to. Right. Now, how, is, by the way, by the way, even though it's not Chick Fil A that they're reaching out to, even though it's not Chick Fil A that they're 
you know, that they are – is Chick-fil-A that they are grossed out by and that they are condescending toward or loathe. The market wouldn't exist if it weren't for Chick-fil-A people buying oh, so Apple massive. products right, 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 and right. black people and Hispanic people and all of that. The thing is, whom do they sell to? What is the aspirational quality of the new iPhone and the iWatch and the, you know... Well, and, it was everything. It, was, it made me laugh. And the aspirational he, quality he looked, he looked is... The watch, this watch will help you with your workout. Say you're, say you're into what, whatever your workout is, cycling, mountain climbing, like... <laughs> Yeah. Like, how about just like yeah. you know running Life. away from <laughs> running away from your troubles? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing <laughs> is, if, if, say you get like two hours in of a really good workout, but you forgot to wear your iWatch. It's like the whole thing was wasted. It was. Well, because you, you can send the, you can send an Uber driver. Know. You can send the Uber driver home to your place to get your iWatch or your Apple Watch to bring it to you. But, but so, Rob, isn't your point basically that everything is on – not just HBO, but everything is on the HBO model. Everything is catered to the buzz merchants rather than to the consumer? Yeah, well, that's one of them. That's one of my many points, as you I mean, know. That's the problem with so architecture. People. That's the problem with modern yeah. art. That's the problem with fashion. You, know, right. you, you look through the but Wall Street all... Journal. Has anyone looked through the Wall Street Journal glossy magazine where they do fashion stuff? There is stuff in there that belongs on – you know, the diplomat from Alderaan and Star Wars. I mean, it's just like crazy right, right, things that right. no human being wears. And who is that geared for? The Financial but Times, the Financial yeah. Times magazine, it's on Saturday. I think it's a monthly magazine, is actually called How to Spend It. It's, <laughs> it, it really is amazing when you think about right. like – <laughs> uh, unemployment at what at the at the at the level it is the 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 world economy at the sluggish sort of pace it is at all the people sort of struggling. I mean, I'm not trying to make a populist argument, but to no, me, no, no, no. But like, you should make a don't populist you, argument. But don't you think to yourself, if I'm if I'm sitting in my you know uh, Bond villain lair, I'm looking around for a good, loud, popular populist candidate to speak to the big part of the American people who are starting to feel a little bit like uh, we're not – we don't count and we're getting the shaft. Yeah. I mean I, I mean I know this is like – It's more like you're looking for Bane from Batman. Right? No, but here's <laughs> – yeah, here, right. But here's, here's why a popular – culture hates us. Because banks hate us. Why? The point is if it were sold to Chick-fil-A fans, yeah. then the Fitbit fans wouldn't buy, buy the yeah. new iWatch. If it if it gave you directions to Chick Fil A, they would be like, "Oh, Chick Fil A, that's so uncool." Whereas Chick Fil A doesn't say, "I'm not getting the iWatch because it only tells you how to get to Whole Foods." That looks pretty cool to me. So there's a very I think there's an interesting aspect of this in which this is a revelation of the extreme, um, you know, the extreme nature of the insularity and uh, parochialism. Sure. Of the white elite in which well, it, it has absolutely no interest right. despite all the lip service. It has no interest in <laughs> sharing right. a common culture Marie with, Antoinette, other, with other Americans. Yeah, Marie Antoinette didn't like the way the poor people smelled. But the poor people didn't mind the way Marie Antoinette, Antoinette smelled. They're perfectly – you know, it's like there's never yeah. – it always goes reverse. And if you look at the way – the hipsters dress now and like that kind of elite look and what they do, they do have – it very much is that little – that le petit trianon kind of quality, that Marie Antoinette quality like, well, we bake our own bread 
and I'm, a, I'm an artisanal cheesemaker. Everybody, right. we, 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 we compost. There's all this weird stuff people yeah. are doing, uh, in the, you know, just, just enough to kind of get their little hands dirty just a little bit, and then they can go use their antibacterial soap. Right. Um, and the, and the, even the jeans, the work clothes they're wearing are like, you know, in, inverted comma, work clothes. You, you, when you go there, there are there are hipster stores in Brooklyn and and uh, downtown Manhattan and in Venice where I live, where you can buy Carhartt brand clothes. Right? These are work clothes. These are things like me, uh, mechanics and machinists used to buy, but now right. the hipsters are walking around. I saw them on on the weekend walking around L.A. Walking around ninety degrees here, but they're still in their big heavy selvage jeans. You know those big thick black jeans, basically, and those heavy work shirts because that's the fashion. Because uh, for some reason they feel that's um, cool. Right, right before, but, but yeah, anyway. but consider consider like NPR, right? National Public Radio, which is I think the ultimate consumer product of this sort, despite the fact that it's public radio and self-supported and all of that. Um, listen to This American Life or This American Life, uh, Glass, Act Three, Act Three, uh, or one of those uh, cutesy. Uh, quiz shows, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or Ask Me Another, or something like that. And what you are hearing is the worldview of people who live in six neighborhoods. One of them is mine, the Upper West Side. One of them is yours, Rob, right? Sort of Santa Monica, Venice. Right. Uh, uh, Jonah's in Northwest White. Yeah, DC. the mission. That would be a third. The there mission, are, you know, Cambridge, Wicker Park. Yeah. And the point is that aspirationally, there are a whole lot of people. There are a whole lot of people in, in, in America who don't live there who think that people like us are the coolest people in the universe or people <laughs> well, who live in our, thinks, in our neighborhood. Nobody whoa, whoa, thinks whoa, that whoa. people like us. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's where you're that is where that is where you are mistaken. That is where you are mistaken. Right. They that, they disagree. want they want to shop at the Whole Foods in your neighborhood. That's what they want. They don't want to live in their neighborhood. They want to shop at the Whole Foods. In your neighborhood, and much of American elite culture is dedicated to mm-hmm. sucking up to them and providing stuff for them, and everybody else, it is presumed, will just go along with this. And mostly, it it's true because all of advertising is about not offending, right? So, if you're Apple, you know, you know that it's okay to diss the Chick Fil A people because they expect it, and they'll buy the phone if it's worth it to them. But you can't diss. The right. Whole Foods people, because no, they're, they're not going to buy your phone. They're yeah. going to be like, "What is this? Who? Brad Paisley? You just there put old, Brad um, Paisley? You put you put some? You know? Yeah. Yeah, what old, are you um, talking about? Great Onion video. I think it was an Onion video uh, about the new uh, Applebee's campaign. <laughs> the new Applebee's campaign, which was d- d- aimed directly at hipsters, and it was uh, it was it was uh, hey guys, wouldn't it be hilarious if we all went to Applebee's? It was all <laughs> sarcastic, and it shows these young hipsters at Applebee's like pointing, like, look, oh, I want that one because there's a picture of it on the menu, and uh, it was great. It was really funny, but it was it, it sort of captured that snark. Uh, right. Jonah. Um, uh, here's my my next question, though, I, uh, because we we, yeah, we can talk about current events too. But I, this was just yeah. mine. You 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 and I have smoked cigars together many yes. times. Did you ever smoke a cigarette? Were you ever a smoker? Smoker? Um, I had smoked a cigarette, but I was never you know like you never bought like furtive thing you know as a teenager. Yeah. But no, I never really liked cigarettes. My parents were both for a long time chain smokers, uh-huh. so 
I probably smoked through secondhand smoke, the equivalent of a pack a day for a lot of my childhood. <laughs> um, and like, I try to explain to my daughter, like what it was like where, you know, everything smelled like cigarettes everything. and like, I'm sure you guys probably have similar, like, you remember when your parents would smoke in the car and they would oh, yeah. have their window open. They tap their ash out the window, and it would fly in through the back window into your, your face. Cornea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I still yeah, remember. So I, I remember the, I, there's a distinct smell of my grand my, my grandparents Lincoln of of AC and cigarette smoke. Mm. Is a power in the summer? Oh is yeah. a powerful smell. John, did you ever smoke? Oh yeah, I smoked. I smoked for like seven or eight years. Like when quit did you quit? In, in, I quit in the mid eighties. And I actually found it not that hard to quit. So, you know, I know people always talk about the incredible difficulty of quitting. And it just it you became did have heroin a, to fall back on. Which that's, yeah, true, that's, that's true. How do you it, feel? It, OK, so you were a smoker. So how do you feel when you walk around town and you see people vaping? You know, the vapor <laughs> vaping? Uh, I was online at a, at, at, a, at a Broadway show this weekend, and there was a guy in front of me vape, you know, had an electronic cigarette, and the, you know, it was puffing, the blue thing was lighting up. And it's, um, it's pretty funny. It's one of the funniest looking things you'll ever see. It is like, it's like extremely nerdy looking behavior. It's like the opposite of a cool cigarette. And like so, cigarettes but always so- looked cool, and they still, even now, have a slight patina. Of cool, maybe it's because of you know old movies or something, but this looks like the opposite. And so, but so you're, but you're indifferent to it. Basically, you don't really have a strong feelings one way or the other. No, and it also I'm wild. I'm wild. It doesn't smell. It also you're doesn't pro-vaping. smell. By the way, see, I okay, this it has makes no me bad, odor. This makes me a bad person. I, I, let me just tell you how I feel, Jonah, and then you tell me why. Why you? Why you're wrong? Why yeah. I'm wrong? I. It makes me mad. And it makes me mad in an irrational way that's completely unfair. I don't smoke cigarettes. I, I, you know, I used to every now and then. I'm, I'm not much. I'm not a smoker. I do smoke cigars. I feel that people who vape should just grow a pair and smoke a regular cigarette. That it just get over it and you know don't try to evade the thing you're doing. You're you're actually smoking. Smoke. Um, do it properly and uh, don't <laughs> try to like do the thing that's not the thing. Just do it. Cop to it and face up to it and be a man. Can I explain why you're wrong, Al? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So so first of all, I'll give you a a good example from my own life. My mom, who I believe started smoking when she was 15 and quit when she was 73, 74, um, could only only quit because of vaping. Um, Because her brain so needed that hit of nicotine after a meal, all the rest, and – the, the the vaping thing uh, made it possible for her to quit smoking. And nicotine is I – mean, there's a lot of BS out there, but nicotine basically isn't very bad for you. And what's bad for you is the actual smoke in your lungs. And so uh, first of all, as just as – I mean, and, and one of the reasons why I think you're wrong is that the peop- most of the people – you're the first person I've heard from the – I mean from the squishy right – uh, who uh, <laughs> from the left, basically, <laughs> um, uh, who is anti-vaping because one of the things to love about vaping are all of the people who hate it. Um, you know, they want to ban it in restaurants. They want to ban it. You know, Michael Bloomberg, wow. all these people, they think it teaches oh, really? people. It's a gateway drug. And it's so bizarre. Oh, it this sends coming... the message of smoking. So co- yeah, okay, and this yeah, is, yeah. it's so bizarre considering how this come. This is 
from the same people who um, are for harm mitigation in almost every other public policy area, whether it's giving out condoms or free needles. You know, the whole point is do what you can where you can. And if you get people vaping, if, if everyone who's smoking today vaped, you would have a huge benefit in public health. The problem is, is that all of these municipalities and states that are part of the National Compact on the Tobacco Settlement would lose billions of dollars in revenue. And so you get all these liberals who claim to hate smoking essentially colluding to support the tobacco industry. And I, so I, for one, I mean, I, I agree with John. And I think it looks weird and it looks kind of lame. Um, and there was a piece in the Times the other day about how – or maybe it was even today or maybe it was in the journal about how they're going to start doing product placements in movies to make it cool. Um, but as a public health thing, I think it's a great thing. So, yeah. gentlemen, yeah, yeah, gentlemen, yeah. Uh, I must uh, interrupt to say that Glop Culture, this rather, uh, shall we say, discursive podcast. <laughs> highly, focused conver- <laughs> highly focused conversation. Is, is brought to you by Encounter Books, a significantly more focused uh, publishing house than this uh, conversation is a focused conversation. This week's feature title is Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel by Joshua Moravchik, a longtime and extraordinarily valued contributor to Commentary Magazine. Making David into Goliath traces the process by which material pressures and intellectual fashions reshaped world opinion of Israel. Initially, terrorism, oil blackmail, and the sheer size of Arab and Muslim populations gave the world powerful inducements to back the Arab cause. Then... A prevalent new paradigm of leftist orthodoxy in which class struggle was supplanted by the noble struggles of people of color created a lexicon of rationales for taking sides against Israel. Thus, nations can behave cravenly while striking a high-minded pose and aligning themselves on the Middle East conflict. This is a very original, a very powerful, and a very important book. To get it, for 15% off the list price, go to EncounterBooks.com and use the coupon code RICOCHET. Of course, R-I-C-O-C-H-E-T at checkout. We thank Encounter Books for sponsoring Glob Culture. And really, this is a very important book. Um, and, uh, you know, interesting d- little datum for you. Um, uh, last week, uh, a lot of us got, got the email that Charles uh, Krauthammer, uh, who is the uh, featured target at next week's commentary magazine Roast here in New York, Charles Krauthammer sold his millionth book, um, things that matter. His uh, his remarkable collection of of columns prefaced by a, a long introductory autobiographical essay. Here's what's interesting about Charles Cradhammer's Things That Matter. It was not reviewed by the New York Times. It was not reviewed by the Washington Post. It was not reviewed by the news magazines. It w- did not receive wow. major reviews. It has sold a million copies. Josh Morovchik's book is likely also to get the fisheye from a lot of these places. Um, that's one of the reasons that the alternative media culture not only was created, but is so important. Um, but it just goes to show you that there are ways to build audiences outside of these, you know, ordinary uh, methods. Charles has done it. Jonah did it with uh, liberal fascism, which is a book I think that became a, you know, a, a national phenomenon in part, in large measure without any of that kind of attention. Um, and with attention from new media and alternative media. So 
it's sort of an interesting thing. And Encounter Books is one of the key publishers in this in this area. So uh, Josh Romchick's book is well worth the reading. Now, can I, I want to talk, move the conversation back to politics and the world situation and the president and the speech that he delivered last week about the threat from ISIS and his promise to degrade and destroy uh, ISIS. ISIL. Um, ISIL. ICE, uh, the so-called Islamic State. They're not Islamic, John. Uh, they're not Islamic, which is Just why, so, as I believe so, Jonah may have said, they're so not Islamic that if we arrest them, we give them a Quran. That's how not Islamic they are. <laughs> yeah, Wasn't that, that your line, Jonah? It's yeah, a, yeah. Genuinely great line. So if they're not Islamic, we really should be giving them, you know, the Book of Mormon or the Gideon you know, Bible or you something like that. Want to give them like fresh that. to read, yeah. Right. So anyway, um, uh, there was a really remarkable piece of reporting on Saturday in the New York Times by Peter Baker on conversations that the president had with various um, members, largely of, let's say, the you know liberal media, conscious liberal media, you know, Peter Beinart and Andrew Sullivan and Tom Friedman and this one and that one and the other one. And uh, Baker talked to sort of 10 people who were at these uh, conversations and it and as a as a look inside the psyche and the brain and the thought processes of Barack Obama, it is one of the more extraordinary pieces of journalism I've ever read. Because what it seems to suggest to me is that is that the level of of, of Obama's feeling internal feeling of detachment from his personal responsibility, not only as commander in chief. But really, as the leader of the free world, it is a position he does not really think he holds. He thinks about it entirely from the outside. And uh, this is one of the reasons, I think, that he does not understand that it doesn't look good for him to go golfing four minutes after uh, talking to the parents of an American uh, beheaded uh, by ISIS just because he was an American. Um, You know, he starts giving advice, as Jonah hinted, you know, advice and counsel and what he would do if he were strategizing yeah, listen, for, yeah. for ISIS. You know, beheading, smart. Yeah. beheading, it's a little violent. And, you know, maybe you could just pin a note to somebody's chest and say, stay out of it. That would really that would really work because the real purpose of, uh, you know, of these organizations is to is to make a case for themselves. And they're really not 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 doing it in the most effective well, but it was manner. Worse than that because the upshot of that was I I mean, the way I read it was him saying, gosh, I wish they had done that. Right. Well, of right? course. And, of, you know. Of course. But it, but he's also saying, you know, that's what I think they should have done. And it, it would have, A, it would have, you know, would have made their case a lot more reasonable sounding and, you know, would have made my life a lot easier. Right, right. But I think that there is a level of separation that he seems to have from the notion – what he knows is – He's president. His actions have consequences. So if he sends people into war, they go to war and they get killed and things will happen. And his and his the, entire foreign policy structure was, I'm not going to war. So now he's going to war. So what's his first thing that he comes up with is, we're not going to war. 
where, where it's a fight. It's not a war. John Kerry then twists himself into a pretzel the next day to say it's not a war. It's a struggle. It's a it's a it's a national conflict. I'm not going to use the word war. It's not war. It's not war. And then about 24 hours after that, they decide, you know what? This thing of not saying it's a war isn't working. So suddenly Kerry says it's right. a war. White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough but- says it's a war. Josh Ernest, you know, says. It's a war. Why are they saying it's not a war? Because the entirety of Barack Obama's foreign policy superstructure is, I don't go to war. I don't go to war. So if I'm blowing people up at 20,000 feet, that's not war. War is only, boots on the ground is war. Airstrikes are not war. Drones are not war. Right? This is, this is the entirety of his approach. And as a result, now that he feels like he's somehow been backed into an unfair corner, not only by you know, evil Republicans who are pushing him and public opinion, which is pushing him, but by this lousy ISIS people. I mean, look, they're beheading people. If they just put a note on the guy's chest, I wouldn't have to go to war with them, but instead they're beheading them. So I have to, it's just so unfair. Let me eat my waffle. Let me eat my waffle. But don't you think it's part of the, the position that people of that ilk put themselves in? You know the academic left, which is uh, in the, the the reason for everything bad in the world is because of America's past, America the West's past actions, and so th- of course you want to give PR advice and strategy advice to our enemies because they're just doing it wrong. You don't understand. I agree with you. Like uh, listen, I agree with you. All right, I I I see your point. Just let me let let us let us help you explain yourself to the powers that be. I don't think he thinks of himself as an advocate for American interests so much as a as the uh, as as the guy who's going to teach America how to be better. And I so everything every everything's about America. So nothing's about foreigners. And so foreigners are kind of like in a weird way these sort of irritating you know interrupting they're interrupting him in his uh, in his ministrations and. And th- that's why it's not a war because a war would require action. He's, his point is not – everything he does is a reaction. This is what these people right. believe. And this is a reaction to stuff that's not his fault. He has to send the drones in because George W. Bush. Yeah. Uh, those guys got their heads chopped off because oil and greed and no wi- and turbines in 1971. And that's what it's all about. And so he right. doesn't feel like he's president of the United States. He feels like he's, he is actually trying to make up for 200, 300 years – of uh, of evil, un, unmitigated evil, and un, un, un ceaseless evil. So yeah, I get it. I mean, it makes so, sense. So who's stopping him? I mean, <laughs> here's my point. Like, Jonah, he's going to war against ISIS because because Mar- Marco Rubio says it's be- he's going to war with ISIS because the because he is looking at polling data like everybody else that shows that after. You know, five years and a historic turnaround in polling data after like 30 years, according to which Democrats were suddenly now more trusted on foreign policy and military matters than Republicans for the first time since the early 1970s. That's what happened in 2008, 2009. And now in the most astounding poll turnaround, uh, the United States prefers Republicans to Democrats on matters of foreign policy and national defense by 38 points, according to Gallup. Now, let's say that's wildly off. So it's 31 points, you know, or 29 points, however you want to slice it. It's a like something like a 40-point turnaround in the polling 
on this question. He is presiding over what may be a historic meltdown of the uh, you know on a on, on a topic like this, the likes of which the world hasn't seen, and he can't stand there and do nothing. On the other hand, he also can't not be himself, and he can't try to figure out a way in which he can spare. Yeah. his Democratic colleagues from the responsibility of actually supporting him. So he's not going to call it a war so that he can do whatever he wants to and not force Congress and not ask Congress well, to you don't vote. Have to, on whether it's not a war, but, but it's not a way that, to I mean, win it. I, I'm writing my LA Times column about this, not as we speak, but you guys interrupted me writing it. Um, I, heard you, I, heard you, I heard you typing there while I was and, uh, uh, yeah, you Don't be shocked when I'm quoting you from the podcast. No, uh, but uh, – um, isn't this an argument? Like, I'm as for destroying ISIS as I think anybody, but isn't this an argument for a real serious debate in Congress and a real vote by Congress? You know, the new NBC Wall Street Journal poll says that something like 63% of Americans support Obama's strategy, but 68% don't trust him to carry it out. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that could go really wrong. You know, and so on Thursday night, Obama says, you know, this strategy has worked so successfully in Yemen and Somalia. So that's Thursday. On Monday, today, uh, the Wall Street Journal reports that al-Qaeda is pouring into the capital of Yemen (laughs) to exploit the political unrest. Um, You know, we don't want to be Iran's air force. We don't want to be an air force for the Shiites. I'm all in favor of stopping genocides before they happen. But... You know, by Obama's own reckoning, he's being rushed into this. Uh, all the sort of cookie pusher type foreign policy experts say that these beheadings are, are demonstrate that ISIS doesn't have the ability to project its power um, into a more serious terrorist yeah, it attack. Doesn't, it right. really doesn't because it's only controlling a third of Iraq. That's my favorite part of this argument is – ISIS isn't really that strong. Well, a lot of that's only, just look, I it, it only invaded it only it only invaded it only invaded a sovereign country faced down an army okay. trained by the United States routed it and took over an area the size of Maryland. So yeah, no, I, I this is how we No, but, but I mean it no no I'm I'm in agreement with you. I'm just saying that, that we're we're in an extraordinary moment in which we are being told by, by calm, by ludicrously calm foreign policy types that a, the first, the world's first, arguably the world's first terrorist army, with the exception of Hezbollah, which actually invaded another country and is controlling territory, isn't really that strong. According to what philosophy isn't a conquering force that is actually holding territory strong? That doesn't make any sense. They don't sense. have post offices, John. You don't understand. Yeah. Not currency <laughs> um, or post offices and stuff. It's, but, I mean, uh, I, mean I, I don't, I don't okay, know. Okay, right, but that's different, though. Wait, but John, wait a minute. That's yes. different, right? That's a different question. The argument, the problem with the policy is it's not clear whether he is trying to drive them out of Iraq, whether he believes that it is in American interest to protect the borders of Iraq. Iraq is. Now our protectorate. He's not said that. Whether whether we are going to treat the borders of Iraq the way we treated the borders of Kuwait years ago when Iraq invaded Kuwait, that's one thing, right? That is a war. Or whether it's a terrorist army and this is a police act trying to degrade their their ability to sort of move back and forth across the border and be the Islamic State in uh, Iraq and Syria or Iraq and the Levant or however we want to call it, right? So uh, we don't know what the strategy is. It seems like the former strategy 
there's an argument for that. There's an argument for saying, hey, listen, we, you know, we, we spent a lot of money and time and treasure to, to rebuild this country. You're not, you can't just come in and, and smash it. Um, the, the latter, I'm not sure. I'm sorry that two Americans were beheaded. Um, no, by the way, by the way. But I'm, I'm not, not sure I think that we should be going to war because of right. that. No, my That seems like we're taking the bait. My complaint is not with what you're with what you're arguing. My complaint is with the what I would describe as this bizarre complacency according to which this this force isn't really a threat. This is exactly this is exactly what led him to say in January that it was a JV squad. This is exactly what led him to say 4 weeks before he decided to arm the Syrian you know, the Syrian moderate opposition, they tells Tom Friedman that they're a bunch of, you know, farmers and doctors and it's ridiculous to arm them. So I'm, you know, again, this is one of these things where we're not even, the, we're not the policymakers. We're not the voice of the foreign policy establishment. The United, do you know, the people of the United States are not, they're watching this. He's the one who is going on a seesaw back and forth and back and forth being, insanely unstable. It's a little like what happened during the war in Gaza with Israel, which is that one day the administration would say Israel has the right to defend itself, and the next day it would say, oh, that was a little too far. You can right. defend yourself, but not that much. That's was a, a great, little too much for th- me. There was and a then great the next day they would say you can defend yourself, was, and then three hours th- later they would say you insulted John Kerry. They cannot, they are, un, they are unstable. They're handling foreign policy in an a profoundly unstable manner. In my, which my well, did you read that article? Did, yeah. did you, did you, are you going to tell the anecdote, the Susan, Wright, Susan Rice anecdote, Jonah? Oh, no, go no. ahead. No. Go it ahead. There's an account of a Susan, a Susan Rice at a, at a, at a I forget. She was with the president. Was it in Europe? In the Baltics? Yeah, in Germany. Maybe? In Germany. In Germany. Yeah. And she kind of lost it. And she called a bunch of people mofos. <laughs> our, the foreign minister of Germany, foreign minister of Germany. I think we can say mofo, can't we? On the pod, we, this, well, we were very she, strict about our she language. Did, she didn't our, say mofo. No, she, she did not say that. She said the she five syllable the, uh, version or whatever it yeah. is. The, yeah, <laughs> the full five syllable version. But I by think, the way, I think she that, was I think what they, they say. Uh, yeah, she was almost, and I, I think that the Germans to. Their credit kept saying – the reason they were being screamed at by Susan Rice is because they kept saying, we don't understand what you mean. We don't know what you're asking us because it seems like, as you said, John, it's nine different things every hour. Um, so, and, uh, and then she kind of she lost it. The thing I was going to rant about, um, which I just think is hilarious given what we've – the rhetoric we've gotten from Democrats for the last five years. So in that thing where John Kerry was saying it's not a war, it's a major counterterrorism operation – he didn't just say that we shouldn't use the term war. He said we shouldn't even analogize this to war. We shouldn't use the we shouldn't use war as an analogy. <laughs> and so for 5 years we've been hearing that if you want to deny if you don't want to force elderly nuns to buy birth control, it amounts to a war on women. Like that is a legitimate use of the word war, but a sustained bombing campaign with coordinated ground assaults by militias with AK-47s, you shouldn't even analogize that to war. No, I mean, God, war? I where that's are you coming from? War? How, how can you even think that's a war? You know? It's always war with you right-wingers, yeah. isn't it? No, but, you know, but the other thing is that Obama in this interview with Peter Baker said, you know, 
objected to this notion that he's some kind of one diffident leader. And I'm thinking to myself, diffident? Who thinks he's diffident? No one on earth has accused him of diff- it would be The worst word in the world would be to use the word diffident to describe him. He has actively pursued a foreign policy according to which the United States will be as non-interventionist as it possibly can be. That is not diffidence. That was a policy, ideologically made policy choice. That is who he is. And and he is now dealing with the consequences of his own foreign policy, just as arguably George Bush did, the consequences of his own actions in Iraq and the failure to secure a victory in the right amount of time before the American people lost patience and lost heart and lost faith. Um, and here is Barack Obama, and he is saying the problem is that people misunderstand him. They don't misunderstand him. What he is and what he has done and what is going on is visible to everybody. Yeah, he kills terrorists with drones, and he killed Osama bin Laden, and I think that's good. That's fine. That's wonderful. Nobody, and a lot of people don't, by the way, particularly you know in his own coalition, but I do, but nobody thinks that his foreign policy is, shall we say, coherent or that, no, there is a, no. or that there is a way to look at what he is doing and what he has done and say, you know, when he said we don't have a strategy and then he came out and he gave a speech and he said I have a strategy and then he was finished in 15 minutes and then you know what? There was no strategy. Did you see um, – There's you a see, goal. The goal see, is to right, degrade did, and destroy right. ISIS. There's see, no strategy. Did, did you see Jake Carney on CNN with uh, John McCain? Oh, my God. Oh, did my I, God. Did you see that, Jonah? I did. I did. Oh, my God. Now, I, I, I saw it being uh, uh, tweeted about because um, I was on a plane. I was coming back to L.A. And then I saw that I, I, uh, then I spent the $25 – or go go in flight because it just sounded fantastic, <laughs> I had to right? See it. I had to see it, and um, and then I watched it, and it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be. Yeah, did I miss something? I wanted it to be this just gigantic. Everybody say it was a huge smackdown, and it really kind of wasn't. But I did like his sad little face at the end, where he kind of looked like, uh, well, why is everybody being mean to me? That kind of you know. I thought it was pretty much of a smackdown in the really? sense that you rarely see someone. And by the the odd thing, of course, is that is that you know in that great Washington sense, you know, uh, McCain and Carney are friendly. Like Carney was at McCain's, uh, McCain was at Carney's wedding uh, to Claire Shipman. So you know, this is an odd set of circumstances. But McCain just kept saying, "Mr. Carney, what you are saying is false. Mr. Carney, what you are saying is deliberately <laughs> not true. You can't lie like this on television did it, did, and get away with it." Did it seem like you a smackdown, Jonah? Oh, I thought it was a SmackDown. I just didn't think I, I, I want you know. I wanted to see how delicious Jay Carney's tears were, and yeah. you know we didn't get to that. But I, I agree, it was a SmackDown. It's just that I think those things seem so much more dramatic if you actually catch them in real time. Yeah. Then watch a YouTube clip of them because then all of a sudden all the build up and the Twitter drama oversells but Carney, but Carney, you know, thought he could get out of this by saying, "Look, we'll agree to disagree." And then yeah, that was McCain my favorite said, part. McCain, yeah. no, McCain said. This is not in a matter of opinion. I mean, you know, you can't just say we agree to disagree. What you just said is not true. Right. That's a pretty startling thing so, to say. So what's going to happen? I mean, I, I don't really watch CNN, so I don't really know. Is he, is, is, did, did they talk about it afterwards? Did, would any, afterward, did they, did they say, hey, Jay, you all right, man? 
And apparently they somebody showed bring it. Him a, somebody bring him no, a couple of cocoa or they, something. They showed it on a later show with Carney and then asked him to respond, which I didn't see. That's I guess. not fair. You can't do that. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a very strange moment. I mean, you know, uh, but I, I will say this, which is that for years, people on the right and people on the left have said, why is McCain always on Meet the Press? Why is McCain always on the Sunday shows? Who is he? I mean, why is everyone listening to him? He was wrong about Iraq. Well, he lost the election, blah, blah, blah. Great Have team. other people on. Why? Because he's willing to go on TV and say you're a liar. He's great. That's team. why. Let's get other – let's have other so, senators come out of the you know come out of the woodwork right. and talk turkey the way McCain will. Okay, let me ask a tacky question though. You guys are, are Washington insiders at your Georgetown cocktail parties. Oh. What, do you, what do you think uh, – what do you think they're paying Jay Carney over at CNN? Uh, less than you think. Yeah. Less than I you mean, think because there isn't that much oh, of a wait, market. Well, for- I find J- Jonah, what's the number? If I had to guess, I would say they're paying him $500,000 a year. I go lower. I go lower. $5, I'd say I'd say I'd say he's guaranteed 250 but for a certain <laughs> limited number wow. of appearances and then oh he gets – uh, yeah. But That's a lot of money. That's well, come crazy. On. It's a lot of money but it's less money than you think based on you know when, when – uh, I think when Fox was like trying to corner every Republican would-be presidential candidate, it was, it was I think throwing around a lot more than that. The problem with Carney is he only had two places to go. Um, so if you're, if you know, you're like a – if you're a, a Republican senator – with a little bit of money trouble, but you can talk on TV, the smart thing for you to do is to run for president and, <laughs> and then become a Fox News contributor. No, you don't even have to be a Republican senator. You could be Herman, uh, whatever. You could be any of those people, Palin, be, McCain. Yeah. I think you know, I ben am Carson. now – Ben Carson hasn't, even, ben Carson hasn't even run for president yet. <laughs> I'm going to run for president right now uh, and I'll drop out just to be a Fox News contributor. Fox News and I want to be an analyst. Do I want to be a right. contributor or an But this is why this is why the RNC, the RNC realized after 2012 that it really needed to make sure that the presidential debate season wasn't a you know wasn't an audition tape for Fox News. Yeah. So they changed the rules in order to make it make sure that people were running not to to actually you know try to win the presidency and not just to you know get a good contract with Fox News. Um, uh, now, should we return in our closing moments to uh, pop culture? Uh, yeah, I'd like and, to. Okay. Uh, so I have a piece in the Weekly Standard this week in which I point out that uh, after the uh, disastrous summer of 2014 uh, at the box office, uh, it is now clear that a 20-year secular trend has, has taken root and is irreversible, which is to say that the, pretty much the same number of movie tickets were sold this summer as in the summer of 1996, about 1.2 uh, billion tickets, and um, the population is 20% larger. So effectively, the market for Holly, for you know mainstream movies at the multiplex is now 20% smaller than it was 20 years ago, um, and that the numbers have been ballasted over the years by uh, raising ticket prices and by adding 3D, which raises ticket prices a little more. But that, in fact, the market, the market for uh, mainstream Hollywood fare is shrinking, and there's been this whole argument. Maybe it's because you know people are sick of the same thing, and Hollywood always makes the same thing, and people don't want to watch it. But when I look back at the 
ticket sales in 1996, 97, 98, 99, it turns out everybody was making exactly the same kind of movies then. The biggest box office ticket seller of 1996 was Batman Forever, the third movie in that first series of Batman movies. Just a terrible movie. Terrible, but just as the big ticket seller of, of, of 2014 so far has been Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a wonderful movie, actually. Um, so I don't think that this is about how people have gotten sick of the fair. Um, they may have been sick of the fair at the beginning, and that's why the audience never grew. But it's it's all well, the so same what, stuff. So what is it? I my theory is that if you look at the one studio that seems to be working, which is Disney, which makes Marvel movies, which bought the Star Wars movies, uh-huh. and will have easily the biggest movie of next year when the new Star Wars movie comes out, made Frozen, has the Pixar movies. Uh-huh. What do all these things have in common? And what they have in common which is not the word that I use in the piece, is that they are not smart-ass. Uh, yeah. They are not, not meta. They're not they are not posted. Yeah, they they're not Whole Chick-fil-A. They're Chick-fil-A, they're right. not Whole Foods. Yeah, right. I buy they that. Are, they are straight on. They attempt to tell uh-huh. stories, to remain faithful to the, to the mar, you know, to play variations on the formula, but to remain faithful to, a for, to their formulas. Guardians of the Galaxy is a superhero movie that is really, really, I, you know... I think- Clever, but it is a superhero. Frozen is done, an animated Guardians Galaxy, princess movie. Guardians of the Galaxy yeah. started out. The idea was to make a fun summer superhero movie that didn't take yeah. itself too seriously, which was a, a radical choice. A radical choice. Right. But what intuitively makes sense if you're in the movie business, you're like, oh, these are movies. Let's not make, make them. That's not. They don't all have to be dark metaphors for you know urban decay. That, that was smart. Right. Or or or. But there's another. I have another explanation guy, for it. Smart ass. Smart ass. Self-reflexive, jokey, campy like stuff, Avengers. which people – well, or more like you know, the analogy I use is that you know, Pixar and DreamWorks animation started out at the same time and were neck and neck and Pixar pulled away. Why? Because Pixar made earnest movies, yeah. classic comic you – know, classic animated movies that attempted to explore sort of larger themes. Uh, yeah. and, and DreamWorks made Shrek 2, Shrek 3, Shrek 4, Shrek 5, all this – jokey internal jokes jokes on jokes jokes on jokes and didn't actually tell stories that connected to children and adults at the same right, but time I mean, I mean just to be clear i mean i agree with john on this but the the the, the issue isn't telling jokes the issue is breaking the fourth wall in an ironic way where the audience is sort of tipped off that we don't take our actual story very seriously exactly that's it, what i meant that you're, yeah, right. you're 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 kind of a fool for um, believing in this. That, that is a problem with a lot of media. That's a problem with a lot of content. It's a problem with, the problem with even shows that people like that don't work uh, on a large scale. I mean, Arrested Development was a show that I thought was very, very funny, and I know people who really loved it, but they, you ask them, why didn't you watch them all? And they say, well, you know, I watched most of them, but the reason they didn't watch them all was because it kept making fun of itself and making fun of you for caring about the characters, right? So right. you're asking people to invest a lot of their, so, a lot of their time in a product and this is this is this would be my alternate um, or my additional just uh, explanation for this phenomenon, John, which is that they have invented uh, new movie studios and new movie brands and new channels and new distribution channels and new ways to watch and new screens to watch it on. There are there are uh, uh, almost uh, you know ten x choices in entertainment at any given moment. 
um, that are that are either stuff you've saved or stuff you can stream or stuff that's on now or stuff you can go watch in a movie theater. Um, they have never – they have not yet invented any more time in the day. So right. there is a point at which everything's competing with everything else and you're not – you're just you, – there is a finite amount of time and that time – they're not making any more of it, and so something's getting crowded out. And we already see that phenomenon on television. We've seen it for television for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. We already see that phenomenon with people who say, I have stuff on my DVR I'm never going to watch, or I really want to get to that show, right. uh, but I don't know when I'm going to do that. Um, so it's only natural that this appointment viewing, which is what a movie theater is, is going to be a slightly behind but also going to follow that same pattern. Right. Yeah. However, I will I will say this. Like arguably the best movie of the summer was this really demented, very violent, but really imaginative lunatic movie called Snowpiercer, this dystopian science fiction movie about a train that perpetually goes around the earth in which there are haves and have nots. And there's a, there's a rebellion among the have nots in the back of the train. It's kind of an amazing piece of work. And if it had been released in the 1970s, it would have been a huge hit the way that, you know, gritty, certain types of gritty movies were really big hits in the 70s and now really don't have that much of a shot at being, you know, big time hits. The way Zero Dark Thirty would have been, would have made $100 million in 1974 and made $12 million in 2009. Snowpiercer was released simultaneously to theaters and, and, on, and on video on demand. I saw it on video on demand. Um, and, you know, iTunes and all that. So it made $6 million in the theater and it made $6 million on, you know, video on demand. $6 million on video on demand is not a lot of money. This is like, I think, maybe the biggest one ever in this, you know, joint yeah. channel when right, things are released. Right, right. That's not a very strong show. <laughs> That's not a very strong showing, $6 million. I mean, over three months. Right. So I don't know that that channel is going to work. Like we keep hearing at some point, you know, people are going to watch the, the same quality on their TV and they'll just watch. Oh. They'll be the same thing. It'll be released day and day at home. There's something about movies. If you don't go and watch them in a movie theater, they are devalued. Like they're not that exciting unless um, you're excited enough to go to a theater. Movies no, I don't, I'm talking no, about. I don't know. I don't think that's true. I mean, I think people are large, are much less, you know, movies have much less cultural impact than they used to be. Partially they're worse and partially that they don't excite people the way that well, they used to. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think new movies will be seasonal. They'll be more seasonal. And look, The Fault Lies in Our Star, whatever that was, that made tons of dough. had no stars in it. made a lot of money. It was a, big, yeah. a, a show about uh, teenagers in love and they're all they're going to die of cancer. Right. I mean, that's not that new. It's a, it's a dead teenager romance story. It's been around forever. Um, and that was that made a lot of money, and then people went to the theater for that because it was seasonally uh, appropriate. It was right there in the summer. A lot of kids in right. of school want to go see that movie. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that the 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 history of the movie business is when you move the screens closer to people, the uh, revenues go up, and when you make the screens harder to get to, revenues go down. Right. Um, that's been the history of the movie business. It may that may change, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the TVification of movies is going to be bad. It, it probably will. Right. The, all the movies that people say, "Hey, where, why aren't they making those movies anymore?" Well, they are. They're just on HBO or they're on right. cable or whatever. right. Well, so so in the end, I think we're we're not really disagreeing. I mean, the real but thing is we agree we are, to disagree. We are. We are <laughs> thank you, Jay. We are standing. We are. We remain standing on the cusp of something. It's not a war. Thirty. 
30 years from now, when, you know, we're doing this podcast at the age of 80 or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever it is that however it is that people consume their popular culture is not going to resemble the way they resume it now. Or if it resembles it, it will resemble it only in that it, it, there is a lengthy product that is somehow yet, viewed by people. Yeah, the, people. One, the one data point that I would love to have, and I don't know how you would get it, right? Because your point is, is that people are watching movies less in the theater. Rob's point is that they're watching movies on their own sort of bespoke lifestyle, which I think is right. It would be interesting to, to simply know as a matter of data, are more people watching movies than ever before? Right, because this is sort of what's happened with every other no, field no, no. that has we been know, ruined by the internet. No, no. We right? know, we know that answer. The answer is no. How, come, how do we not know? watching? Well, we yeah, know what's a because, movie? What do you mean? I mean, a, a movie that no, was no. released into the theater and then goes on TV? Or you, what's your definition even, of a movie? Even there, the numbers are much lower. Much what's your lower definition of a movie? Well, I'm not defining a movie. I'm just saying if you asked. If you asked Hollywood, this is not like how more books are published than ever before. Certainly more people are watching more television in more – there are more uh, More people are watching more long-form television on their right. big TVs at home. Right. And they would define those things as movies, a lot of them. I, yeah, well, you define it however – I'm saying that this thing, this object, which is a – a film that lasts, you know, on average, plus or minus two hours, that is made as an individual, you know, bespoke artisanal product that is then released to a movie theater and then eventually makes its way into homes, or not even that eventually makes its way into homes, that the audience for that is remarkably smaller than it was. It's <laughs> been the, shrinking. I hope so. You just described it as a bespoke artisanal thing. I don't want anything no, like they that. They all were, but you know, in look, in, in 1946, 75% of the population of the United States went to the movies once a week. 90 million people went to the movies once a week. So that was 75% of the population. Now it is less than, than – it's like 14% or something like that. And the good news 12%. is no matter what they're going to watch, what, what, what they're going to watch it on, it's going to probably be I Love Lucy. Right. And that <laughs> is the perfect wrap-up. So uh, anybody have any gigs? Uh, oh, uh, wait. Know. I have a gig. Oh, a gig. Rob has a gig. I have a gig. Um, I'm getting I'm getting my calendar on uh, September 26th, Friday in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, I will be giving us the keynote address <laughs> for the James Wilson founding of the country. It's a thing. It's an institute and it's and it's they're having their weekend there a colloquium on the founding um, and it has a complicated name. Um, and my keynote address topic is uh, stop whining about the media. Um, and so it's a it's a you rhino. You're just you just want to go on the View like Nicole Wallace. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you want. You want a male View so you can be a sellout Tokyo Rose like <laughs> Nicole oh. Wallace. But oh, that was actually knew great. Everybody, that everybody, one. go to Amherst and hear hear Rob Jonah. Do you have? Um, any- well, since you bring up a male view and alternatives to mail to the view and blah blah, blah and mails, I am actually on Fox's version of the view, outnumbered this Friday, 
Um, that would be Friday the 19th. Sounds right. Yeah. And um, uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, I'm uh, curious to see how it goes. Uh, and uh, on September 22nd in New York, Commentary Magazine will be roasting Charles Krauthammer. Uh, there are a limited number of tickets still for sale. If you are uh, interested, uh, the tickets are expensive, so it's this is not for this is not for general consumption. But um, you can uh, uh, you can look us up online and send an email, and we can send you the information. That was very Whole Foods of you, not very yeah. Chick Fil A at all, dude. Sorry. Well, commentary <laughs> commentary is many things, but it ain't Chick Fil A. That, that is that is for sure. Because among other things, we don't put cheese on our chicken. Um, so, and I of course will be uh, will be uh, opening a four carat top at uh, at at the uh, at the Chortles in 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 West Nyack, New York. So please please look up those. Uh, Chortles please. is much darker than Chuckles. Oh, Chortles is uh, <laughs> Chortles is the new Chuckles. Oh, it's yeah. the HBO yeah. of Chuckles. It's really it's really where the hipsters who go to Applebee's go after the Applebee's to have a good laugh. So that just gives you a sense Perfect. of. Perfect. Yeah, Lena Dunham will be uh, there the week week She'll after. Be doing that, yeah. She, she, she doing prop yes. comedy. Yeah, it's one of, one of her things. You know, her props are uh, her diaphragm. Uh, All right, and uh, and uh, and and Wendy Davis's red sneakers. So, uh, <laughs> um, so thank you very much, and we look forward to joining you uh, again uh, to discuss pretty much exactly the same things we discussed this time next time because this is. Glop culture, or it's the postmodern version of Sarch's No Exit. We just say the same things over and over again, and nothing gets <laughs> solved. So, with that dark existential theme, I bid you all a very happy afternoon. Goodbye, everybody. See you soon, fellas. Party on, Garth. It's Wayne's World! Wayne's World! Party time! Excellent! And we're out!